come on, say that, come on, say that loud. You are good. And your mercy endures forever. Say it again, you are good. And your mercy endures forever. Come on, clap your hands and shout if you believe it tonight.
Oh, yeah. Love that song. Cut my teeth on that song. Would play it in every service if I had my druthers. Actually, I guess since I'm the pastor, I could. Uh, hey, good to have you with us this morning. Um, that is our music for the morning. I don't know whether Facebook, for those of you watching by Facebook and who just tuned in, I hope it wasn't blocked. We're continuing to work to find music that is and won't be blocked and isn't copyrighted. That's a lot harder than you think it is. It really doesn't matter what year it was put out. It matters whether or not it's got certain protection and basically everything on YouTube, uh, for which is, I mean, that's our source for so much stuff. When we don't have our worship leaders with us, we go to YouTube and we download all, all this crazy good music and uh, but it gets it gets blocked on the Facebook feed. Now it does not get blocked on our website feed. So if you want to switch over there at the end of service and hear that song again, I'm going to have Jeff play that song again as we're going out. So uh, our worship leaders are out today, and uh, I'm going to make a few announcements and get right into the word. So first of all, I want to remind you that we are on Facebook. If that's convenient for you, if you want to invite a friend along, go out to our Facebook page. Here's the advertisement over my shoulder here, and you can find us there at either the website or the Facebook page. Also, this week is our guys gathering. This is not a men's Bible study. Uh, it, it is not a Bible study at all. It is guys gathering using the Zoom tool and technology so that we can uh, have a great time in fellowship. We challenge each other. We ask uh, searching questions. We talk about things that, uh, frankly, do not leave the Zoom meeting and don't get discussed elsewhere. But it's just it's a relaxing time. We laugh. We have a good time with it. And uh, it, 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 it's just a, a lot of fun and a real encouragement. I continue to get uh, more and more reports each time we do this. We do it twice a month. 
we get uh, reports every month uh, about people who are finding real meaning in it and who are finding real substance uh, in the things that they're hearing and that they're getting to share. And so I invite you along. Now, we do not send out the link to that Zoom guys meeting in like an email blast. We don't post it on Facebook. It's by invitation only. And so if you would like to join us, if you're a guy, you qualify, okay? If you, if you are a male, <laughs> you know, it's funny when you're up here and you're doing these things, especially live, and uh, these thoughts come to you while you're speaking, otherwise intelligent thoughts, and these thoughts enter your mind of things to say. You got to very quickly discern whether or not you're going to say them. And so I'm going to say this one. In today's culture and world, who's a guy and who's a gal has changed somewhat. And I'm going to tell you this about this guys gathering, that it is for guys. And that means anybody who is a guy by birth, a guy by gender, or a guy who considers themselves a guy, maybe you're transgender. Here's the deal. I want you to be on this call because of what we talk about. Again, it is not a Bible study. It will change your life. And it's full of acceptance and love and, uh, and just serving and listening and validating each other, all right? So you might be on a journey that's different from the classical social understanding of what a guy is. Come on, all right? Contact us, email me, go out to our website, whatever you need to do, and ask for the link to this Thursday's Guys Gathering. All right, we have online giving that's available for you. Uh, also, you can go out to the website and there's a link right on the homepage down towards the bottom for giving online. Very easy, click, follow the uh, dialogue, all right? F follow the dialogue box. Also, you can text to give. So here's the number uh, over my shoulder here. If you would like to text a gift, 720-730-8510. Very simple. You text the word GIVE to that number, 720-730-8510. Text the word GIVE, and you can give that way. Uh, I have uh, been very uh, forward and um, have announced for several weeks that the series that I have been in, several of the messages have relied extensively on the work of Brad Jerzak in his great book, A More Christ-Like God. I cannot encourage you enough to get it and to read it. It ought to be at the top of your reading list for 2020. Please, A More Christ-Like God. And again today, I will be pulling a number of thoughts and uh, quotes from that book as we get started in our message. I have also, from that book, printed out a glossary of terms. Now, I've had people ask me, especially during this series called Metaneo, for such a glossary. Well, I've got it printed. If you want this glossary, I have it in PDF form, and I will send it to you, but you need to get a hold of me. So my email address is just my first initial, my last name, Corson, at Genesis. CC, like Charlie Charlie, 
www.thegospelmusic.net and I'll send you the new glossary that I've made up here of terms, all right? You'll find it very, very helpful, I assure you. All right, this morning we are on part six of our series called Metanael, and I've entitled it The Beautiful Cross, The Ugly Death. The Beautiful Cross, The Ugly Death. This word metaneo is the Greek word for repent, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with an emotional response of sorrow and guilt and grief and pleading and tears and running to the altar to shake the preacher's hand and repenting of your sins and promising God you'll never do it again. That is the Western evangelical idea of repent, but it is not the meaning of the Greek word that was used by the Bible writers for repent. Again, the Greek word is metaneo, and it means this, together with God's mind. It's a compound word, mind and together with, together with God's mind. Or in other words, a radical mind shift from the way that you've been thinking. Some describe that as a turning, a turning away from. And that does apply. As long as you're not caught up in the sorrow and the grief and the tears, it is not an emotional response to God. It is a very practical, a very logical decision that you make. It's a radical decision that you make to think like God thinks. That is the word repent. So we've redefined it or added to that this thought. Repentance about God. We need to repent about God. We need to repent about the things we believe about God and think differently. So last week, I drew sharp contrast between two different theories of atonement. When we talk about atonement, let, let me help you define that so it just makes it easy. We're talking about, it's a synonym for reconciliation. All right? at one to be reconciled to God. Now, there's seven different theories about how atonement takes place. I produced a, uh, a white paper on that as well and have offered that. You can, if you don't have that, didn't get it yet, you can please, again, write me the same time you write for the glossary, and I will send that to you as well. I want to I, I highlight just two of those seven real quick for you. We went into more depth in the previous two weeks, but as it pertains to today's message on the cross and the ugly death that happened uh, to Jesus, uh, I want to point these out. Penal substitution, first of all. Let's define that. Penal substitution is a theory about how we were reconciled to God. Jesus Christ, in this theory, all right, I'm speaking about the theory of penal substitution. In this theory, Jesus dies to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. Secondly, Jesus is punished, that's the penal, in place of sinners, substitution, in order to satisfy the justice of God and the legal demand of God to punish sin. Once again, punishment is always front and center at penal substitution. And so is the fact that we have a vengeful God exacting that punishment from the followers who would turn and choose to follow Jesus. Now, 
that sits juxtaposed of another theory called Christus Victor. Now, I want to point out that the theory known as Christus Victor was the atonement or reconciliation practice and theology for the first over thousand years of the early church. It is what the Paristic Fathers taught. They never taught penal substitution. And as we learned in our previous lessons, penal substitution is a relatively new theory about how we're reconciled to God. It was made popular by John Calvin and by Jonathan F. Edwards. In Christus Victor, this theology and theory regarding the subject of atonement, onement with God, says this, Jesus Christ died in order to defeat the powers of hell and evil, sin, death, the devil, in order to free mankind from their bondage. Secondly, within that framework of Christus Victor, the cross did not pay off anyone. Your sin was not paid by the cross. Period. Christus Victor, the teaching of our Paristic Fathers, and for the first thousand years of the church, never brought up penal substitution or that Jesus died on the cross to pay a penalty for my sin or your sin. In fact, what he did on the cross was defeat the devil, thereby setting the human race free. And so the penalty that he paid was the penalty exacted by sin, All right? He was not penalized or punished by God. He gave himself willingly as a substitute and sacrifice, killing sin, defeating sin and its power. I was shocked just two weeks ago when viewing a recent clip of a very, very famous television preacher to hear him comment this, I quote, there's one thing that equals the love of God. And you must never forget this. And he was preaching it hard and he really emphasized as and raised his voice as he made this particular part of a statement. There's one thing that equals the love of God. You must never forget it. It's the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God. God loved Israel, but when Israel broke the law of God, read the discipline that he put them through. End quote. I shuddered. I mean, I, I basically knew where this individual stood in his theology of atonement, but I just had never heard anybody so blatantly say something like that and take a theological stand on it and preach it from the pulpit in that way with thousands of people in the congregation and hundreds of thousands that listen. And it is no wonder, it is no wonder at all why Western evangelicalism has adopted over just the past couple of hundred years this theory of penal substitution rather than the theology of our forefathers and our, our paristic fathers in the first thousand years of the church who taught Christus Victor. 
All right, I have a slide for you here, and I'm going to make a bold statement based on my personal study uh, on the works here that, uh, of Brad Jerzak in his book, A More Christ-Like God, and the things that I've been praying about and walking through in my spiritual journey. Here we go. Ready? The violence of God is based largely on the Old Testament stories of Israel's journey as a nation. And it has its spiritual validation in the misinterpretation of Isaiah 53. So once again, the violence of God, the wrath of God that God supposedly carries out against this world and against sinners is based largely on Old Testament stories regarding the journey of a nation called Israel. And it's validated, that position, penal substitution, is validated by a misunderstanding of Isaiah 53. We've got to run through it quickly before we can get a proper understanding of the beautiful cross and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So we are going to talk about the wrath of God right now, all right? It's called the satisfaction theory, so it's another one of the seven. The satisfaction theory. Here's the definition of the satisfaction theory. In the 12th century, Anselm of Canterbury proposed a satisfaction theory. Now think about this. 1,200 years later, all right, we're not talking puristic father here in terms of being early church father. This is 1,200 years after the death of Christ and after the birth of the New Testament church. 1,200 in the 12th century, Anselm of, the, of Canterbury proposed a satisfaction theory for atonement. In this theory, Jesus Christ's death is understood as a death to satisfy the justice of God. Satisfaction here means to pay restitution. So we have this whole legal notion of what it means to be reconciled to God. And I lived in that, I went to Bible school in that, and I preached that for the three, first three decades of my pastorate. A very legal idea, a very legal relationship with God. And if I obey him, then he will bless me. And I'm here to tell you, blessing doesn't come because of obedience. Blessing comes because of God's mercy, his favor, and his grace. Let's go to Isaiah, since that's the passage of Scripture that is so widely used to teach and to validate this idea of substitution theory or penal substitution, Isaiah 53. We're going to look at verse 4 and 5, and then go to verse 8 and verse 10. Here we go. Let me say, as we start reading, most modern translations are heavily influenced by John Calvin's teaching, and thus they translate, Isaiah 53, as God the punisher, God who puts punishment on Jesus. Jesus bears God's wrath against us on the cross, and God's punishment is the reason for Jesus. Now keep in mind, John Calvin was not a puristic father. John Calvin didn't show up on the scene until the 1600s. He was a lawyer. Does that tell you anything? He was a lawyer. No wonder he comes up with a a theory on atonement that's so legal. I'm trying to stay in my seat. I really am. I chose this morning, dragged this 
drag this. It's a, it's a, it's a, I don't know what they call this. Help me out. What do they call this? The, the holy water, the holy water they put in there. And so you, you know, when you come in the door of a traditional, uh, right, you, you touch the water and you, and you do this. And, and, and I'm not against that. I, I bless that. It's wonderful. Now that's not being used right now here in uh, our wonderful sister church here, the Lutheran church. And, and so I, uh, I dr drug it over here so I could use it as a pulpit. <laughs> God loves me. He forgives me. I'm not doing any. All right. Isaiah 53. Look at this. Now, watch the language of this. This is all language from modern translations like New International Version, English Standard Version, King James Version, uh, New English Translation. They all say this in one way or another. This happens to be coming from the New English Translation. Love that translation. I use it a lot for a variety of things. But boy, are they steeped in penal substitution. Why? John Calvin. Listen, verse 4, Isaiah 53. But he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain, even though we thought that he was being, watch the language, punished and attacked by God and afflicted for something that he had done. You might say, well, yeah, we, you know, the interpretation of that is that they did think. He was being punished by God back then. But let's keep reading because this whole language, legal language and punishment language keeps going. Verse 5, he was wounded because of our rebellious deeds. That's true. He was crushed because of our sins. Watch the language. And he endured punishment that made us well. Well, who punished him? Who punished Jesus? You know as well as I do. We were raised with that. I was taught that in Sunday school. I learned it in Bible school. I preached it for three decades. Now here's verse 8. It, it, gets, it, it gets more entrenched, the language of this. Be careful. Verse 8, watch. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Jesus. Verse 10. Though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill... Once restitution was made, he will see descendants and enjoy long life, and the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Look at this, verse 10. This translation equates punishment and the Lord crushing Jesus with the Lord exacting restitution. He's so legal of a God, he's so angry, he's so wrathful, he's so full of justice that he is going to crush Jesus, punish him, exact restitution. Oh, and then the Lord's purpose will be accomplished. It is frightful. It is frightful what we can read from some of our modern translations. Now, I am going to read those same verses now from a set of scripture that was available when Jesus was walking the earth. All right? It is a Hebrew translation. It's called the Septuagint. It's known by the acronym LLX. So when you see that next to a verse of scripture, that means it's coming from the Septuagint. These are the scriptures that Jesus used when he stood up in the temple and read what Luke recorded in chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Right? 
because he's anointed me to preach. This was Jesus' Bible, if we could. Could somebody get me just a, a, a cup of water, a glass of water, a bottle of water that I could uh, have here? Thank you. I'm, I'm trying to teach instead of preach, and so I'm getting dried out. All right, here we go. Watch this. Verse 5 from the Septuagint. He became sick because of our sins. Yes, amen. He became sick. Look at the language. It's not judgment language. It's not legal language. It turns it into what sin really is, which is a disease. Sin is a disease, all right? Jesus became sick because of our sins. The pedagogy, how'd I do with that? How'd I do with that, huh? My, my teacher type here. Last time I got that wrong and I, I heard she went, oh, it's, it's pedagogy. <laughs> he became sick because of our sins. And Kathy knows that the pedagogy, which means enlightenment of our peace, was upon him. With his bruises, we are healed. So this shifts from being legal language to being healing language. It shifts from being punishment language to being, you're sick. I love you. I want to heal you. Now that's altogether a different translation. Now, that's verse 5. So that is the atonement part of the story. Not that God has beaten Jesus to death out of anger, wrath, and punishment. Instead, the suffering, the iniquity, the transgression of humanity was laid on Jesus as an atonement lamb. Verse 8. Now, this comes from Young's literal translation. Young's literal translation. Verse 8, Isaiah 53. By the transgression of my people, he is plagued. What are we talking again about? Sickness, disease, something that requires a hospital, not a beating. Not punishment. You don't punish people that are sick. You take them to the hospital. You heal them. So in other words, the plague refers to what it was like for Jesus when, as a perfect, healthy, sinless lamb, the disease of humanity was put on him. By their transgression, he was plagued. Such different language if we go back to the scriptures that Jesus read from. Now, watch this. Here's the, here's the kicker. Verse 10. Love this reading from the Septuagint. Verse 10. Now, remember the language we already read to you about verse 10 in our modern translations, borrowing from the theory of penal substitution made popular by John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, his great sermon. It's in all the colleges. Every preacher has studied it, and most evangelical preachers know how to preach John, Jonathan Edwards' sermon called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. He preached it with such fire and brimstone that people would run to the altar weeping and crying. He was a great evangelist. His, his theology stunk. <laughs> All right, good time for a drink. But it's men like this who are, 
early. I mean, they're late in the process. 1600s. Jonathan Edwards, 1800s. And we're going to base the theology of Western evangelicalism largely off of those two men? I don't think so. All right. The New International Version, which would be one of those more recent versions, just to remind you what it says first before I read the Septuagint. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush Jesus and cause him to suffer. Do you know that the New International Version is the most popular trans translation of the Bible in the world? More copies of the New International Version sell than any other translation of the Bible, including King James Bible. King James is second. And do you know why the New International Version is so popular? Because it's written for an eighth grade level reading. Now, I get that, and I understand it, and I appreciate it, and I still study and preach out of the New International Version. But I'm telling you, over the past two, three, at most 400 years, these more recent translations have gotten some things wrong when it comes to the exegetes, exegesis of the Hebrew text. Really wrong. And they've characterized God as a judgmental, penal, legal God that's exacting punishment and wants uh, basis reconciliation on exacting uh, a satisfaction that he needs or demands for some reason, okay, called apparently justice. Very unfortunate. And of course, the preacher that I already quoted, if you're joining us late, who I caught on television two weeks ago, preaching and making the statement, there is one thing equal to love, the wrath of God. Oh my goodness, I just hate repeating it even. I repeat it here to make a point. Can you believe that would come out of the mouth of anyone? There is, and he offered no scripture, this preacher. He offered no background for that except Old Testament. Go look at the Old Testament journey of Israel. Yeah, that's right. If you're looking at the Old Testament journey of Israel, you can get all kinds of things out of the Old Testament that supposedly speak about God's nature, God's character, and how he treats us. And they're wrong. All right, it's wrong to do that. We'll talk about, we'll clarify that in just a moment. So here is verse 10 from the uh, Septuagint. Ready? And the Lord desires to purify him of the plague. Oh, my goodness. So verse 8, Young's literal translation, by the transgression of my people, he is plagued. We get down to verse 10, and Isaiah is prophesying, and the Lord's desire isn't to punish, isn't to crush. It is to purify Jesus of this plague that he's, this sickness that he's taken on on our behalf. Thank God for the resurrection. Thank God Jesus went into the grave, he died, and he rose again so that humanity might be delivered from the plague of sin. Hallelujah. So in the midst of this religion in our country, in the midst of this Western evangelicalism, Penal substitution, substitutionary theory, 
people try to find God sincerely. They, they try to determine what God is like. And I want to tell you something this morning. We know exactly what God is like. We have seen God. Jesus said that. That's not me. I'm quoting Jesus. Jesus said, you have seen God. In that you've seen me, you have seen God. Okay? So we know exactly how God would respond to our circumstances and our shortcomings and our sins today. Number one, he is love. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Now notice, it doesn't say God is loving. If, you're just, if it had said that, it would mean that God could stop loving. Somebody who's loving, that's, that's an emotion. That's just an emotion. And, and you cannot be loving one day because you just don't feel loving. And that's kind of how God is in the mind of some people because of poor religious teaching and theology. God loves them on one day, but let you make a mistake, and God's emotions change, and now he's out to exact punishment. Right? So, again, you don't have to try to determine what God is like. We know exactly what God is like. We have seen God, and we know exactly how God would respond today. Number one, God is love. He doesn't have the emotion of love. He's not loving. Love defines God. It defines his very DNA. God is love. Number two, he is the cruciform God of the New Testament. What do I mean, cruciform? It means he is the God whose very nature is love, and he is revealed in the person of Christ on the cross. We call it the cruciform God, cruciform love. John chapter 3, verse 16. Help me, you in the audience here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Underscore this. God so loved who? Oh, I thought that was just churchgoers. People that make the commitment, people who pray the prayer, people who change morally. Excuse me. God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. He gave. He wasn't exacting punishment. He wasn't exacting justice in a legal way. He gave. He saw the sin. He saw the plague. He saw the need for a hospital. And he said, Jesus, you're the answer. And actually what they did together, we're the answer. Because frankly, God died on the cross. The cruciform God. Now, many people who have memorized John 3.16 have never memorized John 3.17. I don't think we have a slide of it, but let me quote it to you here. For God did not send his own son into the world in order that he might judge the world or be judging the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, if God's not judging the world, what are you doing keeping track? <laughs> Oh, Jesus, thank you very much for a good message. Hallelujah. The cross wasn't an object 
And it wasn't an action of punishment. Rather, what if it was a place, an action of God's self-emptying? So I want to introduce you to a hugely important Greek word. It's as important as any Greek word you will ever learn, including the ones already mentioned in our lesson and in this series. But I've never used or mentioned this one. Here we go. It's new. Not new, not new Greek word. New to our study today, right? Kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S. It's used in kinetic theology, for instance. Here's what it means. It is the Greek word for self-emptying. It was used by Paul in Philippians chapter 2 to describe Christ's self-emptying power, his self-emptying love, his self-emptying servanthood, where he laid down, he thought, it, thought equality with God not a thing to be grasped, and he laid down his divinity and became human. Think of it. God so loves you. I don't care where you're living. I don't care what gender you are. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what your political beliefs are. God so loves you that he came. He emptied himself. He became human so that he could be touched with all of our infirmities. And then he hung on a cross. And he was our substitute. But not because God was punishing God. God wasn't punishing God. God was giving himself. And it was really a play on the devil. The devil thought he had him. I've got God. I've got God's son. I'm going to take him into the grave. But Jesus on the third day, Jesus arose. Jesus arose. Why? To prove that what God decided to do worked. God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. Canceled all the debt, Paul wrote in Colossians, that was against us. Nailed it to a tree, it says. Canceled everything that was against us and, and canceled sin in his own body. body. So what if, what if the wrath of God in the Bible, rather than being the childish, vindictive expression of emotional anger, is to be understood figuratively and not literally? What if God's anger is more an anthropomorphism? where the Bible authors used experiences to describe the consequences of sin rather than the punishment, you say, now what in the world does that word mean? Anthropomorphism. Well, it is an awesome word. And you do know what it means because if you've ever read a children's book, anthropomorphism is used by the writers of children's books all the time to make something like a tree come alive with human attributes or to take the wind 
and to give it human attributes. So, what if in the Bible, when we read about God did this and God killed this and God wiped out a whole group of people, what if that's actually an illustration of the writer using what children's writers know well and assigning personality to something that should not be taken literally? What if Jesus' humility, meekness, and servant heart were never a departure from God's glory and power, but actually defined it and demonstrated it? What if the tree in Genesis had a different purpose altogether than the one of being a divine test of obedience, punishable by wrath and abandonment? I promise you that's what you were taught about that tree. What if instead it provided a way to enable and maintain the human-divine relationship? What if in God's love he so loved them, he so loved humanity, that it was a demonstration of that divine yielding and a means by which Christ didn't leave glory. Neither did he depart from God in becoming a man. Rather, he entered his greatest glory and acted out his greatest character in his self-expression as God becoming a human and dying in my place, wiping out sin. Sin was condemned. Paul wrote, Jesus condemns sin in the flesh. Somebody asked me, well, so if you don't believe in penal substitution, if you don't believe Jesus was being punished with your sin on the cross, then why did Jesus have to die? It was a play on the devil. Devil thought he had him, but Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. God became a human being in the only way God knows to love. Give of himself sacrifice himself in the ultimate sacrifice. Hallelujah! Woo! What if the story Jesus told about the prodigal son is really about our heavenly Father's divine consent? Now we're talking about understanding wrath. What is wrath? When you read about wrath in the Bible, God's wrath, what are we talking about? Are we talking about God getting immaturely angry and because of some justice thing he's got going on, he's going to exact penalty from you? Kind of sounds like some parents behave. Is that what we're talking about? Or are we talking very possibly about anthropomorphism and an assignment of personality to the existential, the external Reality that if I choose a journey and a lifestyle of sin, the consequences of sin are still out there. God gets blamed for it as being wrathful, but it has nothing to do with being wrathful. And we need only to look at the story of the prodigal son. What if that story, you're familiar with it, Luke chapter 15, the prodigal who says to his father one day, Dad, I'm leaving. I want my inheritance. The father gives it to him. He goes off into a far country. 
wastes all of his inheritance and finds himself feeding slop to pigs. And he comes to himself and he says, my goodness, I had it better at home just being a lowly, you know, he was a son. But if I could just get back home and be one of my, one of my dad's hired servants, I'd have it so much better than this. I'm going to go home. And while he was still afar off, the Bible says, the father ran to meet him. <laughs> and he didn't have a list. Okay, do you repent of this? Do you repent of that? Are you sorry for this behavior? Are you going to give this up? Now, you know you got to give that up before you can come back in my house. The father embraced him, cried over him, turned to his servants and said, you go kill the fattest, biggest calf you can find. Break out the fresh wine. He put a, a coat on his son, a brand new costly coat, and they threw a party. What if that story demonstrates God allowing us divine consent to choose an alternate path of, su of stubborn defiance and selfish recklessness and experience the wrath of sin, but at the same time, he, as our Father, never leaves. Our God never forsakes us, and he always welcomes us back into his embrace and into the kingdom without shame without shame. What if Diedrich Bonhoeffer, you know the name, said, and I quote, a king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom, end quote. Yes, <laughs> we have a strangely wonderful and a strangely loving cruciform God, Jesus. So what was Christ's death? And why did I title this message, The Beautiful Cross and the Ugly Death? Ugliness comes from the crime that was committed in the crucifixion. The beauty comes from the one who endured that cross. Isn't it a note of irony this morning that an instrument of torture becomes a work of art? Look at this back wall. Many of you are probably wearing a cross. One of the pieces of jewelry more sold and retailed than most others outside of a ring. And there's rings with crosses. Why do we do that? Because it is beautiful. The cross is beautiful. The crucifixion was ugly. So what do you mean? How, how dare you talk about the crucifixion in those terms? Well, hang with me. There's, I've talked, talked about a number of things that we used to embrace and love in some terms that you haven't heard before because we've simply been taught wrong. The crucifixion refers to the sinful act of evil men who tortured and murdered the Son of God, whereas the cross refers to the self-giving servant love of Christ in which his blood symbolizes his mercy and his forgiveness poured out upon the whole world. The crucifixion is what we did to him. We took his life. 
The cross is what Christ did for us. He gave his life. The New Testament presents both perspectives. But look at this. In the crucifixion, here's what we see. It's pictured in the parable of the talents or tenets, excuse me, that Jesus gave us in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. We have the owner of the fields. We have the tenants who are caring for it. And the owner sends his son into the fields. He expects his son to be well treated. And what did the tenants do? They murdered him. Jesus was telling a parable about what was going to happen to him by the temple authorities of his day when they were going to take the son of the owner and murder him. Then you have Stephen, who when being stoned, all right, he was stoned because he held this very belief that I'm telling you about right now. This is why he was stoned. Here's what he preached before being stoned. He said these words in chapter 7 of Acts. And you, you authorities, you, you Pharisees and Sadducees, you religious leaders, you teachers that ought to know better, you had the Septuagint. You have betrayed and murdered him. Verse 52. Jesus and the witness in Acts saw the crucifixion as a homicide. It was ugly. It was brutal. And I'm here to tell you, God did not do that to Jesus. But then we have the beauty of the cross. The cross is spoken of in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, as the love that Jesus has for us, giving his life. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, God is, is seen as showing his love for us by the cross. Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 14 that he will boast only in the cross. They never say crucifixion. Paul never uses the word crucifixion to speak of the love that was demonstrated on the cross. And what about Good Friday? Should we maybe begin to look at Good Friday differently? Because God the Father was there on Good Friday. He was not up in heaven. He was with Jesus. He is not a co-conspirator in the crucifixion of his son. He does not get any pleasure out of betrayal, punishment, or killing. Rather, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. The Pauline gospel of grace, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. And I close our message regarding the beautiful cross with a quote from a puristic father who probably knew a little bit better than Jonathan Edwards. about the cross. He lived from 184 to 253 AD, just a hundred years removed from Jesus walking the earth. I quote a puristic father whose name is Origen. Quote, what could be more of a scandal? What we need faith to see is this. 
that the dead Jesus, forgotten and abandoned, naked and hanging on the cross, is truly the love of God incarnate, which means in human flesh. In the wounding of his fragile being is the fullness of the divine glory. He is not ashamed to be our God. I've always taught in previous decades that Jesus left glory, that in becoming human somehow he stepped down and became something that God doesn't really love or want to deal with until you repent. And now I know God left heaven. God became human. God stretched out his arms and said, I love you. And God said, it is finished. I have redeemed you. I, God, I didn't ask your opinion. I, God, have reconciled you to myself through something I did by something you will understand or know. And you'll buy it on rings and jewelry and wear it around your necks forever. The cross. The cruciform love of God. Wow. It's no wonder Isaiah Houghton can sing this incredible song. Hope you can stay with it if you're a Facebooker. I don't know what they're going to do with this. So jump over to the website. Get this beautiful gospel. Next week, we're going to close our series called Metaneo. We're going to close that talking about the grandest. It is truly the grandest of all finalities. finalities. I am going to present to you the beautiful gospel in chairs using two chairs i'm going to preach a message called the beautiful gospel in chairs it will take the entire metaneo series and tie it all together for you be here next week okay god bless you all and thank you for coming come on say that loud you are good and your mercy endures forever say it again you are good Mercy endures forever. Now come on, clap your hands and shout if you believe it tonight.
Yeah. 